0: Hey there and welcome to the Multiply Church podcast. Multiply Church exists to glorify God through multiplying disciples in our neighborhoods and the nations. We are so thankful you have decided to utilize this audio resource and pray it will help you develop a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. However, this audio resource cannot and should not replace your participation in a local church. Our prayer is that this will simply serve as a supplement to the faithful preaching, teaching, and community you receive within your local church. If you are not involved in a local church, we would love to connect with you. Please visit our website at multiplychurch.church and click connect and fill out our connect form. We will get back with you as soon as possible and would love to have you visit with us on a Sunday morning or become involved in one of our missional communities. Now, let's dig into God's word. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. May he turn his face toward you and give you peace. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Sorry if I if you hear a little, uh, like Zach said, we would much rather have wind than sweat. So you're going to, it's, my mic is going to be a little bit windy today, but I'm Want you to stick with me? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to First John. We're in the letter of First John. It's near the end of the scriptures. So, um, if you head towards Revelation, you're heading in the right direction, and eventually you'll get to First John near the end. Um, last week I introduced this book, and I feel compelled to comment um, on something. Uh, so, uh, last week I might have talked about some weird noises you hear in the night in the middle of winter if you know you know I was talking about Santa we need to be like very clear I was talking about Santa I just wanted to clear the air so if any of you were wondering because I know there was some confusion and um, Alyssa came up to me afterwards and said Nicholas came to her and said needs to run all of his illustrations through you before he ever does anything. I was like, so from now on, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to run my illustrations through through my wife, through the elders, and like 14 other people before I ever do them. So that, that's, that's kind of the funny uh, side of things. But I wanted to walk in the light with you with that and also tell you just a little funny snippet while I was up here saying these things. There was an inner dialogue going on. And in the inner dialogue, what happened is I realized we have children in the room. And so I was trying to avoid some some awkwardness and creating awkwardness for families. And so in that, I start down this line, and I I say to myself, John, you're the king of awkward. You thrive in awkwardness. But this is, you're you're not thriving here. You're drowning. You're drowning. John, stop. Just stop talking. And eventually, I was like, all right, Lord, we're just going to first, John. Let's go. Let's go. Quick. It's like, so segue, what I was meaning to say was, um, so all that being said, thank you for the grace that, that, uh, that you have bestowed on me, and if that's the worst we do on our first Sunday as week weekly, that's great. So anyway, thank you so much for uh, your grace in that. I've learned a valuable lesson, and to those of you who have confessed um, to me that you didn't understand that, thank you for walking in the light with me and also keeping me accountable. Speaking of walking in the light, um, we're going to be discussing walking the light with God and one another this morning. Specifically, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I've probably spent more time in this specific passage in the last year and a half than any other passage, um, probably at any other point in my life. And the reason being is because of the gospel community I've experienced within the family that is Multiply Church I had the opportunity to hang out with some guys last night um, who are part of our church, and one guy who uh, who is not. But it was really cool just to talk about this passage. Um, and speaking about how God has used it to revolutionize what I think about who God is, but not only that, but how I interact with brothers and sisters, specifically around the concept of personal or corporate sin. And what I mean by that is it's helped me to realize that I don't need to take myself so seriously. We don't need to take ourselves so seriously that we don't recognize that we're broken like Zach was talking about uh, as he was praying. We need to recognize our brokenness and we don't need to be surprised by the brokenness of others. And we don't need to be surprised when, in fact, we find ourselves in sin that we could never imagine, have imagined ourselves being in, but somehow we get walk, began to walk down this road and we ended up way over here in left field. Right? So, I want to to take this text and help us to see something beautiful about God, something dangerous about sin, and something even more precious about Jesus. And so there are three questions we're going to be asking today. And that's, what does God desire the world to know about himself? What does God desire the world to know about sin? And what does God desire the world to know about Jesus? And we're going to kick in in verse 5 of 1 John where it says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, this comes on on the cusp of John saying, hey, this is the word of life. This is Jesus. I, I saw him. I touched him. Um, I ate food with him. I heard him speak. I walked with him um, and this is the truth of who He is. He is God come in the flesh. And what's funny is if you go back to the Gospel of John, it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He created all things. And then it goes on to say, and the light of the world was coming into the world. Talking about Jesus. And then we come into this text, and it says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so what God is desiring for us to know about himself from this text specifically is that he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And I I believe we can take this statement at face value very easily and just say, well, God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. And there are probably several thoughts that run through our minds as we think about that. Like, one, God is good all the time and all the time or god is holy interestingly enough if you look in scripture the most common attribute ascribed to god and the most most frequently used is holy that he is holy 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 and so you could say that this means that god is holy or you can go even deeper and say that god is unchanging because if he is light and there's no darkness at all that means he he never exists in darkness he is light in and of himself But I love what John Frame, a really smart dude who knows quite a bit of theology, had to say specifically about this verse. And uh, Ethan, if you'll put up that slide for me so you can read along with me. God does not conform to a standard of goodness imposed on him, nor does he create goodness as he creates the world so that he can change it tomorrow. Goodness is neither above nor below God. Rather, goodness is God. God is his own goodness. Goodness is one of God's communicable, eternal attributes, which is basically one of the truths that God explicitly shares about himself within Scripture. He would not be God if he were not good. And as a result, he will never be anything but good because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, which we'll get to later. This is to say that the highest goodness is actually a person. He is not an impersonal, abstract being like Plato's version, but rather, rather, he is our ultimate standard of goodness, holiness, righteousness, and love. He's a person. And because he is a person, he is not only a standard, but also an example for us. God does not need anyone to tell him what to do. He does what is right because it is in his nature to do so. In the most fundamental sense, He cannot do anything else. He does good because it is his deepest desire, but more than that, God's goodness and his being are one. In other words, God is like. God is good. It's not that he's good sometimes. He is good, and he is the ultimate arbiter of good. So in other words, God is the person, source, and judge of goodness. And this is the face value interpretation that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But I want to delve a little deeper into this statement. And there's a reason being, not because I believe we need some sort of special knowledge like the Gnostics that John was writing to here and opposing that, but because I believe God is trying to communicate something beautiful about himself that is going to play out in verses 6 through 10 that we'll miss if not. I want you to think about light, Think about light in general. Maybe you don't recognize how much you're dependent upon light in and of itself. But it illuminates. It reveals. It exposes. Interestingly enough, everything we see with our human eyes is a result of light. I'm not going to go into the science of it, which i was going to do, but I, I need to like not bog down in that. But what it means is, if we were in an area where we were completely unexposed to any form of light, we were in complete darkness, there was no glimmer of light, no no light pollution, we would legitimately go insane. Because we were meant to see. We would go insane pretty quickly, and if you try to do your makeup, put on your clothes, do other things with absolutely no light, like the muscle memory might work, but you're going to look pretty ratchet that day. Just going to be straight up honest with you. But here's the beautiful thing about our eyes as humans and the way God has created us. If there is even, and I I imagine this in the middle of the night as I'm getting out of bed and I'm going to the restroom, and there's just a little glimmer of light in my room. With that little glimmer of light, my eyes are able to adjust enough that I can make out objects and walk in the dark. I am able to actually see that my bed is there, and I don't want to stub my big toe on it. I can see that the dresser is there. I can see the door of the restroom, and when I open it up, even more light comes in because of the way our house is built and the way the street lights flood in. What's interesting to me that is in light of that illustration and thinking through that lens, how much more powerful is it when we walk in the light with God who is light in and of himself It means that this, that if God is like, he is the creator, knower, and revealer of all things, put another way, God intimately knows himself, everyone, and everything. In fact, when we think about this even more, he is the only one who can know himself completely and infinitely, and as a result, he is not only completely holy, he's filled with all knowledge, including self-knowledge of his infinite self. No one can know God like He does and He allows us to know Him yet. So God desires that the world know that He is holy, good, and all-knowing, and this is good news because it reveals that God is more concerned with our good and His glory than we ever could be. It means that in and of Himself we can trust God's character because we know because He is good because He is sovereign. And I taught some guys about this last night. I don't have to worry. I grabbed lunch with Eston this week and we talked about this. We don't have to worry because God is sovereign And if he's sovereign and he says he's good, who am I to say, God, I I just don't know how you're good here. And it's beautiful to see that he is is coming in and he is saying, I am good, I am holy, I am all-knowing, and I'm more for your good and my glory than you could or your good and my glory than you could ever be. He wants us to to know ourselves better in light of who He is, because as His light shines on us, as the truths of the gospel come to bear on our lives, we recognize, just like Paul, that we're the chief of sinners. That we do have darkness that dwells within us. That we do have sinful desires and sinful just attitudes in so many ways. We have a problem, we're sinful, and naturally we walk in darkness. And that brings us to our next question, the next set of verses. What does God desire the world to know about sin? And he desires the world to know that sin is darkness and it separates us from him. See, in verses 6 through 10, it says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. Oh, this is beautiful. We have fellowship, communion, intimacy. Fill in the blank with those words there, with one another. and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, and this is serious, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, oh, this is good, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God wants us to understand not only the consequences and depth of our sin, but also how much it hurts him and others. See, these verses expose three forms of lying that we're often tempted to do. One, we're going to lie to others. Two, we're going to lie to ourselves. Or three, we're going to lie about God. See, sin or walking in darkness is fundamentally an attempt to be the God of our own lives. It's an attempt that since the fall we've had, the desire to the desire to be the final arbiter of truth or goodness or holiness in our own lives. And it, it develops this form of self-righteousness that is sick. It, it says, well... I'm not as bad as I really think I am but what God and how God defines us is apart from him we're dead in our sins and trespasses in the way we formerly walked but in Christ we are made new God has defined good and evil he is light and he's revealed to us what is objectively true, good and holy who are we in our, and this is a cultural thing y'all This is so. I talked about speak your truth last week, but there has been a an extreme shift from objective, moral, ethical truth. There has been a shift from objective truth that God is, He was, He is, and He is to come, to a subjective truth, to the idea that I am the ultimate arbiter of what my truth is, and I need to speak my truth. I need to live my truth. But the problem with the the fundamental philosophical problem I have here is the fact that when we live our truth, our heart is deceitful above all things. My identity is not wrapped up in goodness. My identity by itself is evil and separated from God because of sin. And therefore, my truth is false. And so... Our t-shirts that we're going to make eventually is, don't speak your truth, speak God's truth, right? That's what I joked about last week. We need to do that. But in all of this, in our own egotistical version of good, we will create for ourselves an identity, a truth that is not actually true. And so we have this cultural narrative running through our minds, and we have to, we have to watch out for it. It all comes back to the garden. We speak proudly because we want our own truth. And ignore the truth that God has clearly revealed in his word. We want our own truth. We want to be the arbiters. But isn't it funny in light of our cultural moment that John begins each of these three types of lying that we are prone to with if we say. If we say. As you think about this, I want you to really read into the fact of what he's saying here. In verses 6-7 through seven, he says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. if we say. See, we're exposed to the danger of lying to others here. If we say we have and if we say we know and have an intimate friendship with God, yet our lives are characterized by continually walking in sin, with no repentance or heart change or godly sorrow, we are liars. We do not practice or live out the truth of God. And it's important to note that the verb "walk" is a present tense verb that connotes a consistent pattern of life. It's not inconsistent. One of the we, it was funny last night, and I'm going back to last night because it's just such a good conversation around the table. We're talking about a, a person in this room who we love very, very much, and I'm going to talk gonna just say Nicholas Lynn. We were talking about him. And one of the things, the beautiful things we said about them is, if we had one word to describe Nicholas, it's consistent consistent, faithful, consistent, faithful. We see consistency in his life and we also see a consistency for him to own where he, has, where he has flaws. We see that and I love that about you brother. It's one of the things I've loved about you after knowing you for four years is the fact that you try your, your hardest to walk in the truth and you're consistent across the board. But one of the things that I, I see in this is if we say we know God but our other proclamations and practices say otherwise, we're liars. If it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it smells like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If we are walking in sin continually, unrepentant, no godly sorrow, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. And the inherent danger in lying about truly knowing Jesus is the mockery and denial of Him. It's outright neglect of the seriousness of our sin. But in contrast, verse 7 says this, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. God prescribes that we walk in faith and obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This is the beauty of the gospel, that our sin separates us from God and one another. However, our faith and obedience draws us near to God and one another and provides the means through which we experience true Christ-like intimacy with one another. It's a beautiful intimacy. It's a beautiful communion. It's a beautiful fellowship because it means I can drop the pride. I can drop the act. I can drop all this idea that I have it fully together and I can come together with brothers and sisters who ultimately know that I don't have it together. I can't hide on Facebook. I can't hide on Twitter. I can't hide on all these other things. But I am who I am. And by the grace of God, I'm being renewed in the image of Christ daily. By the grace of God, I can walk in the light. I can have my dirty laundry put out in front of everyone because I don't have to worry in the sense of within the gospel community, the community that Christ is creating. I don't have to be ashamed because there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What if we lived in light of that truth? What if we, in in walking with one another, truly believe that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? What if instead of coming in a condemnatory fashion to our brothers and sisters in Christ when they sin, when they fall short, we came with love and grace and mercy? Yes, we're serious about the sin. This is an affront to an eternal, holy God. Yes, this is messed up. But God is better, Jesus is better. Jesus bestows grace and there is nothing in which you can do that will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor width, nor angels, nor principalities. No. The love of God compels us to walk in union with Christ and in unity with one another. It's the beauty of the Gospel that our intimacy with one another is frequently a good indicator of our intimacy with the Father. I said that last week, but it's so true. As we walk intimately with God through faith and obedience, we grow deeply in relationship with Him and our brothers and sisters in Christ. In essence, we get a small taste of heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. God, may we see that. May we see that we're able to walk in the light. We don't have to put on a show, we don't have to be this thing that we're not. We can be broken but we can lay brokenness aside at the foot of the cross because Jesus is better, because He's risen. And because He is risen, we have hope. We have joy. We have peace. You see, sin assures us that we are safe behind a mask of lies, but we are not. We struggle to make the connection between the need to be honest with others and the need to be honest with God about our sin. And it is in that dark void that we change. We start to tell lies and eventually believe them within ourselves. We resist the Holy Spirit as He pricks our heart and seek to silence His convicting voice living with hidden lies and sin gradually becomes the normative. But confession of sin to one another removes the mask of hypocrisy. It allows us to breathe in the air of truth. It reawakens our hearts to feel again and it lifts the veil of darkness so we can clearly see Christ again. So that confession actually humbles us, which by definition removes the pride that so easily entangles us and keeps immorality alive in our lives and appealing to our souls. Our only hope for change is to see Christ. But we will not see Him until we come out of the shadows and confess our sin to Him and one another. It's not going to happen. So come out of the shadows. Live in the light. I recommend that we air out our dirty laundry early and often. We need to make confession of sin normative again like it was at the church in Acts. It was normal and healing for the church in the first century. And it should be normal and healing for us today. It's difficult, it hurts, and a lot of people have been hurt by this. I did a DNA session at Summit Crossing where we talked about confession of sin within DNA, and I know probably all of you in this room have been burned in some form or fashion by someone who is a follower of Jesus, maybe unintentionally or maybe intentionally, because you confess something to them and the next thing you know the entire community knows. I think it is much more dangerous for us to walk in sin and in darkness not with Jesus and one another, than to have all our dirty laundry aired out for the community to see. It is much more condemning and damning for our souls. It it creates this darkness, and we walk in this darkness, and we walk in this sin, and we begin to think that no one can understand, no one can walk with us in it. We believe that we're the only one who struggles with it. We believe the lies. We, we begin to walk and we have to cover up all these things because we want people to see this version of us because we are so-called followers of Jesus. But the definition of a follower of Jesus is a sinner saved by grace. It's a sinner saved, not through their own merit, but through the merit of Jesus. And so I don't have to worry about walking in vulnerability and transparency because it's not about what the community thinks about me. It's not about ultimately what my brothers and sisters in Christ thinks about me. It's about what God thinks about me. It's about what Jesus has said that is true about me. If I am in Christ, I am made new. There's no condemnation. I am a son of God. You are a daughter of God. This is the beauty of the goodness of the gospel, that even if our hidden sins are exposed, God remains sovereign. Christ remains our Lord and Savior. He's lavished His grace on us, and His blood cleanses us from all sin. There's no condemnation. So we do not have to be afraid of man or man's opinions of us. We do much better to consider what God thinks of us and what He desires for us. In verses 8-9 through it says this, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, John reveals that those who walk in darkness not only lie to others, but also they deceive themselves. He's clear that God says we are sinful, we're desperately in need of Savior. We may think we have it all figured out, we may think we can earn grace, but we are only deceiving ourselves with these thoughts. Because he gives the prescription for what we can personally do with our sins in verse 9. If we confess them, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this. In confession and repentance, we are continually agreeing with God about our sin. It's not just a a confession, but it's an agreeing with God. We're admitting the reality that we're sinners, and our transgressions are an affront, an insult to a holy God. And on the other hand, we're also admitting the reality of who God is. He is righteous and faithful, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all of our wickedness, not based on anything we've done, but wholly on who he is and his righteousness and the righteousness he bestows on us through the cross and the resurrection. In verse 10, John encourages us not to lie about God. If we say we are sinless, we proclaim a lie about God. We claim that he is a liar, and we claim that we are the arbiters of truth. But God's word must be our foundation, our firm foundation, he says we're sinners. He says that we desperately need a Savior. And therefore, we are and we do. This is why it's so important for us to know and the world to know the truth about Jesus. So what does God desire the world to know about Jesus? And we're going to land the plane on this one. Verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2. love how John begins this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But, this is a beautiful, beautiful phrase here. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. The beauty of the gospel comes through here. There are seven instances where John uses my little children within this letter. It conveys a fatherly concern because John sees those he's writing to as dear children in the faith, who do not need to be swayed by the lies of the enemy, by the lies of their own hearts, or by the lies of others. He's a father who wishes to protect his children from harm. In verses 5 through 10, he makes it abundantly clear that a sinless life is impossible, and that's why we need an advocate. The word advocate literally means helper. Jesus comes to us in our need. Jesus moves into our neighborhood. He, he lives the life we cannot live. He dies the death we deserve. He rises again victoriously on the third day, and He's coming back. And we will, we will experience the goodness of God so profoundly in His return, but even now we can experience His goodness and His love. He acts as our advocate before the Father so that when the Father looks at us, He sees His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased. And therefore, He is overjoyed in us. He's overjoyed in us. It means that our salvation is accomplished through the person and work of Christ, not by our own merit or work. He's the atonement for our sins. He is the one who has satisfied God's holiness and turned his wrath away from us. He is the one whose substitutionary death on the cross and glorious resurrection provides the path through which we come to know Christ, to come to know God and walk in intimacy with him, and not only with him, but one another. This is good news for the entire world and not just for those of us in this room. There are countless people for whom Jesus died, but who have yet to learn that he loves them. Countless. I don't know the exact numbers, but there are, and Zach, you can help me out with this. I think there's roughly 15,000 people groups, 14 or 15,000 people groups in the world. Roughly half of those people groups have never even heard the name of Jesus. Countless. Countless and it's not only unreached people groups that's a that's a big broad field that people have said but i would dare say there are some people and you're going to think i'm crazy for saying this but there are some people in your very neighborhood who have never heard the goodness of god through his son jesus christ they have been painted a picture they've been explained this jesus that is not the jesus of the bible they may know him by name or be acquainted with the name but they're not acquainted with the person They're not acquainted with his goodness or the lengths to which God went to save a people for himself. You see, they don't recognize that he loves them, that he bore God's wrath on the cross for them, that he rose from the dead. Millions of people have not been told that Christ is their only hope in life and death. Millions, if not actually billions of people have not been told that. We have neighbors and coworkers who are calling out to us unknowingly because they are drowning in sin and self-righteousness because not only do their bad works condemn them but their good works condemn them. Because Christ is the ultimate arbiter of good. As one theologian put it, these people are hungry beggars asking other beggars where they found bread. And we have the answer. Jesus. He's our advocate. He's our atonement. He's our lord. He's the King of Kings. It's only through Christ alone. John would eventually be boiled alive, by the way, after writing this. He'd be banished to the island of Patmos after writing this letter. He would watch the disciples who walked alongside Jesus, the other 12. One, he would see uh, Judas hang himself. He would go on to see these other 11 be martyred, some of which being hung upside down on a cross to die a death. His own, he actually had a, John had a disciple named Polycarp who would actually be burned at the stake. He would be burned alive and then he would see this, or or he would be boiled alive and he would see this clear vision from God, which we see as the book of Revelation. And this is what it says in Revelation 5, 9. And this is John concluding the vision of what he's showing here. You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Don't tell me that the Bible is not consistent across the 66 books. Don't tell me that God doesn't have a plan for you and for me. And don't tell me that God is not concerned with our intimacy with Him and with one another. He is. He wants the world to know that He is light. And there's no darkness in Him at all. That He's holy, that He's good, that He's all-knowing, that He desires that no one perish but that all come to repentance. He wants the world to know that sin is darkness, that it's condemning, that it's damning. Damning. He wants us to know that we're apt to lie to others and to ourselves about Him. And He wants the world to know that sin is deadly. It's serious. But more importantly, He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He wants us to understand that when we sin as His children, we have an advocate who cries out, Father, forgive them. Look at me. Look at what I've done. See my perfect righteousness. Don't look at their sin. Look at my perfect life and atoning death. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, through me whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's from John 17 when he's praying for us, by the way, the high priestly prayer. Jesus praying over you. May we wet rest in Christ's finished work and let go of every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. Continually looking to Jesus. Just keep looking to Jesus, y'all. He's our hope. I'm telling you, this world, my heart is breaking as I'm preaching this because this world is so caught up in sin. And we're so easily entangled by and we have the truth, the goodness of God in us through the person and work of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, God himself. And he has come to us and he's given us this vision of seeing him glorified through the multiplication of disciples in our neighborhoods and the nations. We're going to come back to that time and time again, but guys, I'm broken hearted. May we rest in Christ's finished work. May we look to Jesus and may we go forward with the good news of Jesus to every person. As we come to a time of communion, I I just ask you to, to ask a couple of questions with yourself in reflection. One, what did God teach you about Himself this morning? Two, what did God teach you about yourself and others? Three, who outside of our church can you tell this week? And four, and this is a big one, have you truly reflected on Christ's life, death, and resurrection before partaking in the Lord's Supper? Because my fear is, this becomes ritualistic. What, what you don't understand is that for 1,500 years at the beginning of the church, the center of, of the gathering of believers was actually not the pulpit. The center was the table. It was remembering Christ's life, death, and burial, and resurrection. It was remembering this. And then when the Reformation happened, we we elevated the pulpit and kind of moved the, the table a little forward. But guys, this is not ritualistic. Jesus is present in this. This is a way that we are able to come together and say, this is Christ's body that was broken for me, and this is His blood that was shed for me. And if I confess my sin, His blood cleanses me. all sin and unrighteousness. And so I want you to to think about that and then in that second form of that question, have you asked the Lord to show you any sin that needs to be confessed? Then brought it before him and any others before partaking. Because this is an ultimate, a, a beautiful opportunity for you to come before a holy God and before brothers and sisters and say, I don't have it together. It's not just a generic Lord, I've sinned this week. It's, no, call out what I've sent, what I've done in sin and say, Jesus, cleanse it. Help me to repent. Help me to live in light of the truth of your word. This man comes up.